This Motley Fool podcast is supported by Wonder Capital, an investing service that allows individuals to invest in solar projects across the U.S. Earn up to 11% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash fool. That's Wonder Capital. Wonder with a U. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. This is a special edition of Rule Breaker Investing because, well, two reasons, really. First of all, we have an in-studio guest, one of my favorite authors, Candice Millard, who will be joining with us this week on Rule Breaker Investing. And second, because we're also going to do mailbag. So, I'm going to conflate both an author interview and your mailbag into this one podcast. And I hope bring it in under kind of the same sub 30 minute goal that I try to deliver almost unfailingly every week. So, the order of this is going to be we're going to start with Candace today. And then after Candace Millard's appearance here, we will go right to your mailbag. And I should say before we start with Candace, this is a short form interview. I'm really excited to let you know that this weekend, coming out on Saturday, we have a longer form, so 25 to 30 more minutes just direct with the author, learning more about her craft and other aspects of being Candace Millard. So, a bonus extra for you this weekend. So, I remember mentioning to you late last year on this podcast that I was really enjoying a book called The River of Doubt about Teddy Roosevelt's exploration of the Amazon, of a place that had never been visited before in South America. This was after his presidency. And then later on, I read Candace Millard's next book, which was The Destiny of the Republic, about the unfortunately short presidency of James Garfield, one of the four American presidents assassinated. Uh, A remarkable book set largely in my home city of Washington, D.C. Well, when I heard that Candace Millard was coming through Washington for a book signing for her new book, her third book, Hero of the Empire, about the young Winston Churchill, I thought, we've got to try to get Candace on this show. And sure enough, she said yes. And I'm really delighted then to be able to welcome her right now. Candace Millard is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The River of Doubt and Destiny of the Republic. She lives in Kansas City with her husband, and three children. Candace, welcome to The Motley Fool. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure. You know, A talented doctor of history I know, Robert Shermer, here in Washington, D.C., recently said in his classroom, I was in it just last week, when he said, you know, it's the journalists writing history who are selling all the books, not the historians. <laughs> and he wasn't being critical of his peers so much as he was talking about the power of the word well chosen and stories well told. Uh, Candace Millard, before we talk some about your new book, you're a cracking good writer. Thank you. Who was Candace Millard before she wrote her first bestseller? And go as far back as you'd like. Um, so I was an English major, as I believe you were as well. And my plan was to go on and get a PhD and to teach. Um, when I was getting my master's, um, the push at that time was for lit crit, uh, literary criticism, and um, and I I just didn't enjoy it. You know, I didn't want to deconstruct the text. I want to wanted to immerse myself in it. I wanted to enjoy it, and um, so I thought, well, maybe I can write. Um, and I was in Texas at that time. I moved back to Kansas City, moved in with my parents, no money, and just um, looked for a job and started working out little trade journals and things. My way up, and then I got my big break, which was as a research. 
researcher in the TV division at National Geographic, and that was kind of my foot in the door. And I loved it. I love National Geographic. And not even a year in, I got my job, um, my dream job on the magazine. And that, I always say, is my real education because I learned so much. Well, first of all, what a huge and fascinating world we live in, how many mind-blowing stories there are out there, and how to research them. And, and what I learned most of all is that there's no matter what subject you're delving into, there's somebody who knows a lot about it, who's spent their entire life studying some tiny portion of it. <laughs> you need to find that person, and you need to talk to them, and you need to ask for their help. And you wouldn't believe how generous people are with, with their time and their extraordinary knowledge. So you were here in Washington, D.C. for six years, but mm -hmm. presumably you were out in the field and traveling out and about during those six years, or were you just cranking it here somewhere I, in a D.C. office? I wish. Office? No, I was um, you know, right at the National Geographic headquarters downtown. I was mostly an editor. Mm -hmm. I um, was also what they call a legends writer. The legends are the captions, um, and they had, at least at that time, they had a whole team of people who just wrote those captions because they're important. Obviously, National Geographic is all about the pictures. You want to know what's going on. But they also tell a little story. So that, too, is a great education. And being kind of economical with my words and figuring out how to convey the most information and emotion in the smallest amount of space. Um, and um, and I loved it. And then I was constantly begging them for an assignment. But they, you know, it's usually the big name freelancers who get this time. But I did get to do some cool things. I wrote about um, rock art in the Sahara. I wrote about um, this group of people in Mongolia who still use eagles to hunt with. And um, the best thing I got to do is I went to Ethiopia and I spent, spent about a month there um, working on a story about the kingdom of Aksum. So it was um, just this incredible experience for me. This is unfair to the kingdom, but in a sentence or two, for those who <laughs> never heard that phrase before, could you give us in a sentence or two the kingdom of Aksum? Yeah, so the kingdom of Aksum was this um, very, very powerful um, kingdom in the fourth century. And, um, and, it, and it was a Christian kingdom surrounded um, by Islam. And, um, and today, Aksum is this uh, very poor city right on the border with Eritrea. Um, it's war-torn. Um, there's just a lot of poverty and starvation. But they have one thing that is very unique, where they claim to have the Ark of the Covenant in Aksum. And, um, and it's held in this little area, sorry, um, with a, a monk who oversees it. And that, that monk blessed me through the bars of the fence surrounding it. So it's this beautiful place with an, with an incredible history and story behind it. Aksum, excellent. Thank you. Uh -huh. So your first book, The River of Doubt, how did that come about? What was the transition? What was the magical moment where you got a book deal? So I was living and working in National Geographic uh, in DC, loving my job at National Geographic, and um, I got married. And my husband has a company in Kansas City, and um, I still continued to live here because I, you know, I didn't want to give up my job. I didn't know what I could do in Kansas City. I'd love as much. And then I was pregnant with our first child, and I thought, you know, we probably should live together at some point. So um, he said he had been a journalist for the New York Times for years, and he said, you know, you should write a book. 
And I, so I began casting around for ideas, and um, I had lunch with a man named James Chase, who had just written a book about the election of 1912, which is the election that preceded this trip that Theodore Roosevelt took in the Amazon. And he lost his bid for a third term in the presidency. And um, I started researching it, and I was just stunned. You know, three men died on this trip. One was one drowned, one was murdered, one was left to certain death in the jungle, the murderer. Roosevelt nearly committed suicide, um, and it's in the richest ecosystem on the planet. So it was everything I wanted to talk about all wrapped up in this incredible story. Mm. And it is an incredible story. Um, by the way, speaking of Kansas City, it sounds like you got to Kansas City on a Friday, and by Saturday you learned a thing or two? Yeah. <laughs> it's back to my Oklahoma days, my high school Very lead nice. that I had. That... But wow, things really changed <laughs> the... for you quickly. <laughs> Yes, they did. Well so, done. your new book, Hero of the Empire, <laughs> focuses on Winston Churchill, but but not the jowly, silver-tongued fellow who helped save his country and mm -hmm. maybe the Western world from Hitler, but you're focused on a 24-year-old. Why Churchill at 24? Why this story? Well, this is really the making of Winston Churchill. So, Churchill had run for parliament before this war and had lost, and he saw this war as an opportunity to make his name. And um, and become famous. Now he he never could have predicted what happened, um, but the fact is that this war did turn him into a hero. He ran again while the war was still going on. He went back to England, ran again, and he won, and it launched his career. Um, the Boer War itself is really also the the beginning of modern warfare. It's some of the first guerrilla fighting, first concentration camps. It really prepared the British Army for World War One. So there's just a lot that's very, very fascinating um, to me about this, and it's and it's seeing this this man's formation, this man we all know, this you know incredibly famous human being, where he came from and how how he got there. And the book largely covers, and it starts with an escape from a prison, uh -huh. and then a 300 mile trek. Uh -huh. Do I have it right now? I have not read it yet. I've, I've read your previous two, but this has just come out this week. But is that where we're headed? Yes. No, no well, spoilers? <laughs> right. Well, it doesn't start there. Um, it actually starts with him in Malacan in British India fighting there. So you can understand who he was. So again, he's 24 years old, but he's already been in three wars on three different continents. He's already written three books. He's run for parliament. So he's this incredibly ambitious young man who is willing to risk anything, even his life, for the fame and attention that he thinks will propel him to political power, which he thinks is his destiny. So it brings him to South Africa. He's actually a correspondent. He's left the military at that point. So he's a correspondent there to cover the war. And he's very quickly captured. Mm. Well, Candace, I've just asked you about your new book, published, as I mentioned this week. Of course, the tendency is going to be for interviewers to ask you more about Hero of the Empire. Uh, we don't have as much time for this. I'm looking forward to the podcast extra coming out Saturday with more time together. But Great. for the here and now, I want to ask you about what's going on, not just in this book, but through all three of your books. So, sort of a, a meta question. Why, why these stories and these books from you? I, I have my own thought about this, but what are you after? So what interests me is a person's character. And to me, what I'm looking for is a story that will be um, illuminating um, about this person and this time. And 
to I think that the tighter I take the story, the the um, sharper the focus, um, the the deeper I can dig in. And um, I think that often when we look back in history, what what attracts us our attention are those big moments of sort of public triumph or infamy, and those are sort of these signposts through history. But what interests me are the more private moments of of struggle where somebody is um, disappointed or grief-stricken or sick or scared, and you can really see their true nature come through. And it was interesting to me, James Garfield, the subject of my second book, he said that um, when someone is sick, you see who they are completely revealed, and he called it the bed of the sea, which I thought was such a beautiful and vivid way of explaining it. And I think that is absolutely true. So Roosevelt and the River of Doubt, he, he, he's terrified for his son. People are dying. He nearly takes his own life. And you can see, I think, very clearly who he was. And it's the same uh, for Winston Churchill when he's trying to escape. He's got almost 300 miles of enemy territory to cross, mm-hmm. no help, and, and very little hope. And, um, and it's sort of down to the core of who he is as a human being. You know, I, I think when I first read The River of Doubt, which was earlier this year for me, just after uh, traveling to and in Ecuador, um, there was a wistfulness uh, that I had about Roosevelt. And then a couple months later, when I read Destiny of the Republic about Garfield, that these are leaders of authenticity mm-hmm. and character. Mm-hmm. And I think the wistfulness is maybe a little bit of a 2016 <laughs> wistfulness that I have. So and I there, share. there's an allure to the nostalgia of, a, of an era when our leaders were um, not prepackaged, not mm-hmm. processed, and also, um, I would say, people of highly admirable character. And that, that mm-hmm. to me, is something that you keep pursuing in your work. I agree, and um, I think especially uh, for James Garfield, you know, he was so little known um, because he was killed just a few months into his um, first term as president. But he was really an extraordinary man in, in many ways. He was absolutely brilliant. You know, he was instrumental in bringing about black suffrage. He was a hero in the Civil War, um, but he was also just a decent human being. Who, who, he, and he differed from Roosevelt and Churchill in that. He wasn't, um, uh, you know, full of arrogance <laughs> and ego, you know, and and he actually tried to prevent himself from being nominated um, for for the Republican nomination, but um, but he he was a decent human being and he was incredibly well read, and that's another thing that all three of these mm. men have in common. You know, they read and read and read, and they had this deep desire to learn and to understand um, the world we live in, and um, and. You know, it would be fantastic if that were always true. We're going to talk more about that in our podcast extra. But to conclude for now, got to ask you, what's next? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm asking myself. I have three ideas. Um, I'm excited about, and I'm really looking forward. I'm I'm traveling through the end of November, but um, once December comes, I'm going to get back to my office and um, really dig in and find out if I have all the material and everything I need and which one is my favorite that I'm then going to spend years of my life with. Mm. Are you open to suggestions? Absolutely. Have you ever heard of Cliff Young? No. Okay. So I hadn't either until recently, but just to throw it out there, an Australian potato farmer uh-huh. who won the first ever Sydney to Melbourne ultra marathon. Wow. 500 miles in less than six days, uh, starting at a loping pace that had him mocked 
by observers. Uh, he ended up beating everyone else by 10 hours. Jeez. He was 61 years old. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. What year? That was uh, in our lifetimes. Wow. Uh, Cliff died, uh, I believe, in his late 80s in 2003. That's extraordinary. So, uh, anyway, it's, it's a, kind of an Young. untold story. Absolutely. It's an Australian story, but yeah, I'm throwing it out there. <laughs> I bet you would do it fantastically well. But A great excuse to go to Australia, too. That, 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 that as well. <laughs> Okay, well, as I've mentioned, Candace has graciously consented to a special Rule Breaker Investing Podcast Extra. That's a longer form interview where we're going to talk some about her craft and about Millard the Investor, if you're ready for that. <laughs> That'll come out in a few days, as I mentioned. In fact, this Saturday, all ready for your weekend jog. So we're going to leave it there for now. Candace Millard, I've loved your first two books, and I can't wait to crack open your third. Thank you for joining in this week with Rule Breakers. Thank you for having me. What if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Introducing Wonder Capital. That's Wonder with a U. The award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the United States. Their online investment platform allows you to earn up to 11% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Your investment in Wonder's Fully managed solar investment funds goes directly to helping U.S. small and medium-sized businesses install solar panels. As those businesses repay their loans to Wonder, you receive monthly payments directly deposited into your bank account. Individuals who've previously invested with Wonder Capital have supported the installation and long-term financing for a high-end storage facility in Florida, a government office building in Minnesota, and many other projects across the country. Best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Create an account for free at Wonder Capital. That's with a U. WonderCapital.com/fool. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. All right. So from our in-studio star guest, we go to all the other stars out there. That's you. All the people outside of the studio, and your mailbag. What you send me each month. So it's an abridged version this month for obvious reasons, but I want to start with one of my favorite mailbag exchanges, maybe in our Rule Breaker Investing podcast mailbag history, if you will, a history book that will never be written. But here we go. I received this rather remarkable note about a month ago, reflecting on our two episodes when I talked about the Joint Civilian Orientation Conference, my tour with the American military at the end of August. Uh, it took a week or two for this note to show up, and that's why I'm featuring it right now, but right up front here. And this is from Ahmed, who I believe is writing from Saudi Arabia. I believe that's the case. Um, I'm going to share what he wrote to me. Then I'm going to share what I wrote back to him, just so you can hear the loop being closed here. So, really provocative and interesting viewpoint. Here we go. My dearest Motley Fool Chairman David Gardner, I like your podcast. No, it's the only podcast I listen to every past episode of and anticipatingly wait for every week because I love your podcast. However, I couldn't care any less for the last two episodes. Please hear me out as both you and I, quote, believe that considering a diverse and motley range of insights makes us better fools, end quote. While I sincerely appreciate your patriotism, and I'm sure you will appreciate mine, I don't think the U.S. Department of Defense, the DOD, is worthy of all that praise. I know you firmly respect their effort in defending your freedom, but in the eyes of a large part of us, and I believe I can speak for the majority of Middle Eastern fools, we don't see much, in quotes, defending. Here, 
The DOD appears to be more like a DO assault. The U.S. has invaded, occupied, and still continues to nourish the conflicts that keep the Middle East the mess it is today. No wonder they told you that peace in the Middle East is not the goal, not because it's not achievable, but simply because it is not desirable. Cooperation in the Middle East is just a sneaky way of saying that the U.S. does not want to grant sovereignty to any country over its matters, whether that country is an ally or an Iran. The words used are very deceiving, and indeed, deception must be a very valuable asset. I guess deception is a form of truth, after all, just not the entire truth. That, and much, much more of what we have seen over the years, lead me to conclude the DOD as an institution is used to enforce U.S. unjust and inhuman foreign policies. With that said, I have no doubt of the existence of honest and honorable men and women in this institution, along with other dishonest and bad apples. I had the privilege of learning from Professor Jeremy Holmes, a retired Air Force general who still replies back to every message I send him. But the issue remains at large with the will and direction of bigger forces than those individuals. I've never written such a lengthy piece to another podcaster, nor do I anticipate to do so in the future. But my respect and admiration for the podcast, which I save 13 episodes of in my all-time favorite list, pushed me to express my level of frustration with the direction it took the last two episodes. Maybe my letter will mean very little to you, but I feel I could no longer go back listening to the podcast without venting and writing my thoughts down. Sincerely, admirer and devotee listener, Ahmed. And I asked permission from Ahmed if I could share with you on our podcast what I wrote him back. And he said yes. And so here it is. I wrote, Dear Ahmed, thank you very much for this capital F foolish note. I understand your point of view because you've illustrated it well and because you've done so with civility and respect. You are also a fellow fool. To me, This can be a bond that runs deeper, certainly, than nationalistic notions. Next month's mailbag, I'm going to share your note with your permission. You illustrate the motley array of viewpoints that we encourage here at The Fool, and you do so in an exemplary manner. I agree very much with portions of your note as well. I believe that U.S. foreign policy has often created more problems than it solves, and many of the people I met last week on JCOC are not, of course, policymakers, but people who are bound faithfully and loyally to carry out policy, even if in some cases they themselves may not agree with it. They put their lives on the line, some of them, and have displayed a heroism in their daily job that is far beyond anything I have ever been challenged to do. I completely can understand the viewpoint that says that much of what has happened or is done by the American military is not welcomed. Indeed, many Americans would say the same thing, and I'm blessed to live in a country where they are indeed able to express that freely and openly. Part of what I believe America is trying to do in the world, and it is even more a cultural or business phenomenon, far more effectively than I think foreign policy or military objectives will ever achieve, is to enable as many people globally to enjoy such freedoms of speech, of economic opportunities, and of stability as we frankly take too much for granted every day here in the U.S. I do believe the vast majority of people I was podcasting about are not just decent, but actually quite excellent people who have their hearts in the right place and would be exemplars in any community. Nevertheless, I think we in America must often apologize for aspects of our past, not just internationally, but in our own internal culture. 
Anyway, your heartfelt and well-motivated note is appreciated, and I hope you will keep in touch in future. Next week, we return to the sorts of podcasts you hear the other 50 weeks of the year, so I hope I didn't lose you. Foolish best from one fool to another. David Gardner. And I call this a happy ending because Ahmed replied and just paraphrasing a few of the things he said in response. He said he was glad to hear my kind and eloquent response. In truth, he said he was anxious. It would not be well received. He was surprised to hear that I agreed with some of his points, although he said he shouldn't have been surprised because I'm not the first American that he's heard to disapprove of some of our foreign policy. He said my response certainly helped soothe the wounds. And maybe we should put this behind, he went on to say. And feel free to mention this on the mailbag as well. He closed out by saying, hearing my voice over the radio every week, he's always felt like he knows me. I hope that's true of everybody who listens uh, every week to Rule Breaker Investing. And now he's happy in closing to have made himself known to me in this genuine interaction, although he wrote, I hoped it was in better circumstances or a nicer subject. But if he's ever in D.C., he's going to make sure to visit Fool HQ. Uh, I had invited him once before on Twitter, in fact, he'd mentioned. So now you see why that was one of my favorite all-time exchanges on Full Mailbag, because I think it represents what I'm trying to do through this podcast and what we try to do here at Full HQ through our company, and that is to welcome motley array of viewpoints, because we have something to learn from everybody. And especially for us to achieve an understanding with each other, starting from maybe very different assumptions about what has happened in the world or what a good world looks like going forward. I think that we arrived at a better understanding of each other. And I very much thank you personally again, Ahmed, for taking the time to write that note. Okay, mailbag item number two this month. I'm just going to put two together. These are kind of fun. We need to be quick on this anyway this month. So, First one comes from a longtime fool I know from our Motley Fool community, Paul Hooper. He's at Seljanik on Twitter. He wrote, on caps, just two months, my daughter points out her best stock is the one she picked entirely herself. And the second one, kind of connected with this, but from a completely different person, this is from Celeste Ireland, at Celeste Ireland on Twitter. And she wrote, sorted my scorecard by purchase date and found the further back I go, the less losers I have. Great lesson to hashtag buy and hold. And the reason I put these both together is because I really appreciate positive expressions of what's working for you. And what we have here is we have a dear father working with his daughter to get her picking her first stock, and then a woman who has taken the time to look backward and recognize that scoring herself as she's doing using a scorecard, which is just great, you're seeing that sure enough, if you let these stocks, if you kind of leave your portfolio alone and don't be overactive, especially selling too quickly, you'll find that what looked like a dog maybe that first year or two can turn around and all of a sudden become a winner for you. It's funny that I'm noting, let's just talk about a stock like Exelixis. The ticker symbol is EXEL. It's a biotech company aimed at cancer solutions. I'm noticing it because this week it crossed the 100% gain mark. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is I picked it uh, along with my team in 2005 for Motley Fool Rule Breakers. So here we are, 11 years later, and we just crossed a double. The stock market has exceeded that. The stock market's up about 140% over the same period. But 
Axelixis has gone up literally 93.5% in the last three months. So, most of the gains you had to wait 11 years to get. And where Axelixis is now with its cancer solutions and the stage of the company, still not a profitable company, but I think it could be one or two pops away from being a stock that ends up being a long term winner. Now, this isn't a big stock for us at Motley Fool Rule Breakers, but it's a great example of how. If you let enough time pass and you have good people doing good work and you're invested in their business, you can sometimes turn a lemon into, sorry for the cliche, lemonade. And mailbag item number three, and this is the last one we have time for this month, comes from Dave Armstrong. His Twitter handle is at ScholarGypsy with a Z-I. And I really appreciate this, Dave. You were reacting to what we tweeted out from this podcast I'd said, some of the best businesses just think about how they can make our lives better. Often, it's just a question of trying to solve problems. That's what we tweeted out. And you replied by saying, I like this from Conscious Business. And this is a book written by Fred Kaufman, K-O-F-M-A-N. And like the John Mackey book, Conscious Capitalism, this is an excellent guide to thinking, I think, smarter about business. And for us as investors, finding the businesses that we want to be invested in. I've met Fred Kaufman before. He's from South America. He's a very good man. And here was the quote that Dave pulled out from Fred's book, Conscious Business. He wrote, and I quote, "...business is one of the most important strategies through which human beings pursue happiness." Customers buy something because they believe it will contribute to their happiness. Employees work because they receive material and psychological compensation that furthers their happiness. Shareholders invest because they expect a return that will make them happy. The value of a business, then, is measured by its ability to contribute to human happiness. A beautiful and true sentiment. Okay, we're right near the end, but I want to hasten to mention again Candace Millard's long-form interview with me, which will be out this Saturday, a bonus extra for all Rule Breaker Investing listeners. Well, that's all the time we have for this week, a very motley episode of Rule Breaker Investing, one I'll remember for quite a long time. And next week, I'm really happy to say we have another special guest. This time, it's going to be Dr. Anna Maria Lusardi, who is one of the nation's foremost experts on financial literacy. This is a topic near and dear to our hearts here at The Motley Fool, and I, and I bet for many of you as well. So, to have Dr. Lusardi joining in and sharing some of the insights and some of the challenges that she sees, it will be my pleasure to showcase. Till then, Fool on! As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.